Jesus told Satan, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's true for us tonight as well. So we are going to live on, feast on, get life from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I planned on preaching the whole chapter tonight. I have the whole thing here in my notes. But if you notice on the handout, that last point, I have three main points. And that third point has four subpoints, which is like a sermon unto itself. Um, and so maybe in the interest of time and not speaking 100 miles per hour, I'm going to, I might just do our first two points today and then pick up that third point next Sunday morning. We'll, we'll see how the Lord leads. But I will read the whole chapter here from 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, right now as we begin. So let's look at the word of the Lord here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's writing to Timothy. Remember again, this is his last letter before he dies. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 8. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is according to my gospel. I suffer for it to the point of being bound like a criminal. But God's message is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we lived with him, for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching or handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent, empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godlessness. And their word will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus, Philetus are among them. They have deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are overturning the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, having this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver bowls, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, 
along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. Father, we want to escape the devil's trap. We want to come to our senses. We want to be granted repentance. We want to be taught by you. We want your word to convict and clarify and guide us. And so, Father, we pray that as we meditate on this passage, that you would have your way with us and that we would be hearers and doers of your word. We ask that Jesus would help us as we abide in his words because we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. So we are weak, incapable on our own. And we need your help. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of, uh, as some do, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the day of judgment, the day of Christ's coming. And you know that every week why the church gathers is because we are one week closer to the second coming of Christ. And if Jesus tarries, we're also one week closer to dying. We have one week less of life. And therefore, the urgency to live faithfully, loving God and loving people, and being encouraged by God's people is all the more urgent. The urgency increases every week as our time gets shorter and shorter and shorter. We need to finish strong. And my prayer is that even with the time passing, that the greatest days of our church and even our own lives, the greatest fruitfulness for our ministries are in front of us and not behind us. That's my prayer. And that's my hope. And that was Paul's hope for Timothy here as he's about to come to a close here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. As, as Paul's ending his life, he hopes that Timothy's life and ministry will have greater fruitfulness as Paul descends or goes off of the scene. And so this is the hope for our church family. We want to bear fruit in the days to come. We want to be stronger in the future, not weaker. So I'm praying that more and more people will be gospelized through us and changed through us, not less. So here we see in our text the main command in verses 1 and 2. I think this is the main command for the whole chapter. I'm not sure if we're going to get through it, but in, chapter, in verse 1 it says, You therefore my son, and who's the son here? Timothy. So who's the father, the spiritual father? Paul, right, from verse 1 so of chapter 1. So you, therefore, my son, Timothy, because of what we talked about this morning, because you must share in the pain and not shrink in shame, because the people have abandoned me and Onesiphorus has been faithfully ministering to me, because you've been given this gospel ministry gift, Timothy, verse 1, what should you do? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so the title of this message is, May God, may the grace be with you. Now you might hear a movie phrase in there, right? May the grace be with you. What are you thinking? 
the force, right? May the force be with you. Now, the force is definitely an unbiblical Eastern mystic type of thought with a good and evil side and things like that. But you can be strong in grace and weak in grace. You can look at someone and say, the grace is strong with this one. And the grace is weak with this one. And, And Paul's command to Timothy is that the grace would be strong in him. Timothy, you have God's grace in your life. Every Christian has God's grace in life. Every non-Christian actually has God's common grace in their lives while they're existing as well. But for the Christian, you have God's saving grace in your life. And you need to not just be content with what you have. You need to grow stronger. You need to be strong in the grace that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus died to give you that grace. That is a blood-bought grace. Your salvation, your justification, the spirit who lives in you, your gospel ministry, your love for others, the spirit of power, love, and sound judgment from chapter 1, verse 7, that's a blood-bought gift of grace from Jesus. Be strong in it, Timothy. Be strong in it, Christian brother and sister. And so that's, that's, the first, that's the general command. Just be strong in God's grace. Grow in God's grace is the way... Peter says it in 2 Peter chapter 3. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So that's the first command is be strong in grace. The second command, which is a little bit more specific of what to do, is in verse 2. And it says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here is another way of looking at the Great Commission. What's the command here? You have heard things from me, Timothy. What has Paul, what has, what, this is what we would call, if you want to say this word, I'm going to say, I'm going to say this word and it's going to give you a bad image and then I'll, I'll clean it up. Apostolic succession. You might think of Roman Catholicism and, and the Pope where, you know, um, the apostle passes something on, his authority to his, to the next bishop and they pass it to the next archbishop and so forth, which is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that they have an apostolic succession. Now, we believe that the apostles' ministry still goes on today, but not through a conferring of an office, but through the teaching of the apostles. Notice that in verse 2. What you have heard from me. So if Timothy's hearing it, Paul is speaking it, right? He's teaching it. And it's public. This is public teaching. This is not some private you know, a mystic or um, secretive teaching in the back door in a back room where Timothy can stand up in front of the church and just say, look at my authority. I have the authority vested in me from Paul. No, this is public teaching, which makes it, which makes it, which makes every teacher publicly accountable to the teaching. If I claim to have some special authority or if some teacher came here and claimed to have some special authority over you because it's been given from the apostles, How would you know if they have special authority? By the teaching, right? By the book. What are they teaching? Is it biblical or not? In other words, the authority is not invested in the person. It's in their teaching. And so here Paul is passing on. He's about to die. He's not passing on apostleship to Timothy. He's saying, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, what are you supposed to do with what you heard? Commit or entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so, in other words, you need to be a disciple, learning from someone, teaching another to teach another. So there are, you might have heard this before, four generations in this text. Do you see that in verse 2? Do you see four levels? You have Paul, who's teaching who? Timothy. And it says, Timothy, you're supposed to entrust this or commit this to who? 
faithful men. That's a third generation that Timothy's pouring into. And what are they supposed to do? Be able to what? Teach others also. So there's the fourth generation. Do you see that there? There's four generations from Paul to Timothy to who Timothy teaches to those that Timothy teach or to those that got it from Timothy teaching it on to the next generation. That's how we are supposed to live our Christian lives. So we are to have a a few Pauls in our life who've been pouring into us. Do you have other faithful men and women that you're pouring into that you're committing what you have been taught to them? It could be through a Sunday school class. But you could say, PJ, we only have three Sunday school classes. There's no, there's no Sunday school spot for me to do it. You don't need a Sunday school class to do it. You just need a Bible and a conversation. A meal, maybe. Meals are good. It doesn't have to be a meal, but meals are good. Get together with other Christians. Get a Bible out. Read it together. Pray over it. Hold each other accountable to it. And then meet again next week. And then say, hey, after six months, I want you to do this to someone else. And I'm going to go find someone else as well. Imagine if our church had that culture where there was Bible reading going on, meeting up in pairs of twos or threes and reading the Bible together and encouraging each other and then bringing a non-Christian or a visitor along. Imagine a visitor coming up here on Sunday who's looking for a church and there's maybe two or three groups that are reading the Bible and they all invite them. Hey, why don't you come read the Bible with us this week? We meet on Wednesday nights or we meet on Thursdays and we just, you know, for lunch, we, we get together and we read the Bible and pray. You're welcome to join us. That would be a great culture to cultivate. In the church, it's a culture of discipleship. And it doesn't need, who's responsible to disciple? Obviously the pastor, but who else? Who's responsible to make disciples, according to the Bible? All Christians. Okay, not just mature Christians. All Christians. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you. So you have to teach those you disciple to obey it as well. Okay, so that's the main gist of this text which is basically be strong in grace as a disciple-making disciple. You have to be a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. That's the point. You need to pass it on because we're dying. Paul is dying. He's passing on Timothy. Timothy's dead now. He passed it on to others. We're here now. hundred years from now, we'll all be dead. And if Christ isn't here yet, those we've poured into, have poured into, have poured into, will be the ones spreading the gospel, Lord willing, in this world when we're long gone. Okay, so the the main command here in verses one and two is be strong in grace, verse one, as a disciple making disciple. Now, there's three ways of doing it or three keys to doing it in this chapter. And I might get through all three. We'll see. You need a strong mentality, verses three through seven. You need a strong memory, verses eight and nine. And then you need a strong ministry. Verses 10 through 26. And we'll see if we get to verses 10 through 26. But we'll at least do the first two. If you're going to be, a, if you're going to be strong in grace, if the, if the grace is going to be strong in you as a disciple-making disciple, you need a strong mentality and you need a strong memory. Okay, let's look at the first one, a strong and then a strong ministry. But let's look at a strong mentality first in verse 3. So it says in verse 3, now in verses 3 through 7, we have four different mentalities to consider. Verse 3 says this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. In other words, you need to have the the mentality of a what? Of a soldier, right? A soldier's mentality. Now, it says in verse 3 that a soldier suffers. Does a soldier make sacrifices? Do our veterans have our veterans made sacrifices? Yes, right? 
Soldiers make sacrifices. They sacrifice family time. They sacrifice career, perhaps. They sacrifice their lives, even, many of them, or their health, or their mental health. They sacrifice for the greater cause of the army or the the, the military. And that's the mentality we're to have. Are we at war today as Christians? Yes. Now, we're not at war with our neighbors. We're not at war with non-Christians. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities. It's a spiritual warfare. And so we are at war, so we need to have this soldier mentality, which means we share in suffering. You're going to have to make sacrifices, as we learned this morning, right? We learned that from chapter 1. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, we have to suffer. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.12, which we'll talk about next week, it says, all who desire or all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be You see it there in verse 12, chapter 3? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're not persecuted from this verse, what can we conclude? That you don't what? Have a desire to live a godly life. Now that seems pretty strong, but... And what I mean by that, I'm not talking about people shooting at you and putting you in jail. Not in America, at least. Not yet, praise the Lord. But where some people oppose you. Remember Jesus said... Um, woe to you if all men speak well of you. You're going to offend some people. Or Jesus said, if the world hated me, they will also hate you. And so, as a soldier, a soldier doesn't please everybody. Who does he try to please in according to verse 4? The recruiter, the, one who, the, the general, the one who called him into service. And so we need to have that soldier mentality where we share in suffering. It's a wartime mentality, not a peace mentality. When you're at war... You're totally focused on surviving and advancing the cause of the army, right? You're not thinking about Disneyland. I went to Disneyland this week. It's a fun place to be. It's not the happiest place on earth. I love being at church gatherings far more than being at Disneyland, but it's still happy. But, but life is not Disneyland, right? That's, that's a fantasy world. We're in war, and this is wartime. And so we need to have this wartime mentality where we're totally focused on the urgency and priority at hand. We have a commanding officer, according to verse 4, a recruiter who has suffered and suffers persecution still. Jesus suffered, did he not? He was persecuted. He was hated. And I said he still suffers. What do I mean by that? Do you remember when Paul, who wrote this letter, was on his horse on the Damascus road? And he got knocked off by the bright light. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, was Jesus there? Did Paul or Saul at the time persecute Jesus personally? Apparently, Jesus is saying, you're persecuting me. How is he persecuting Jesus? By persecuting the body of Christ, right? The people, the church. So Jesus is still being persecuted today in in our persecution. So we need to have this soldier mentality that we are going to share in suffering because we seek to please a Messiah, a master who suffered. We seek to please Jesus. We don't seek to please each other. The way we're going to love each other in this church is not by pleasing each other, but by pleasing Jesus in our love for one another, in serving each other. So we seek to please Jesus, not each other. We seek to please Jesus, not our non-Christian friends and neighbors, not those who press the like button on our social media. If you're into Facebook or things like that, we're not trying to please them either. We're trying to please the one who recruited us. Our second mentality is in verse 5. 
So not only have the soldier mentality, but the athlete mentality. Look at verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to what? According to the rules. Now, when you think of an athlete, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I beat my body and I discipline myself. That I might not be disqualified. And he's pushing and pressing himself with all of his might like a trained, disciplined athlete focused on the prize. That's not the athlete mentality Paul's talking about here. Okay? Now there's hard work next, and we'll get to that with the farmer mentality. But here, what's the athlete mentality in verse 5? He competes according to what? He competes according to the what? The rules. Now, why does he have to compete according to the rules? He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So imagine you're in the World Series. Ken coaches baseball. You're in the World Series, bottom of the ninth. Your team is down one, and it's a full count. Three strike or three balls, two strikes. You swing, you swing, you swing the, the bat. You hit the ball, foul ball, and you don't care that it's a foul ball. You start running, and you tell your friend to run. And you tell them to keep running until you, 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 you get around the bases. He comes home, and they start cheering. We won. We won the World Series. Now, did they win the World Series? No. And what if they say, I don't care about the rules. We crossed, the, we crossed and we stepped on the home plate. We scored. It counts. If you don't compete according to the rules, you don't get a crown, right? You can't just cheat and expect to win, right? If someone is, is racing, you know, and they, 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 they get a head start, a false start, and they still win the race, they can't, they can't claim the crown, you break the rules, you're disqualified, or it doesn't count. So, as, so what do we need as Christians? If we're going to be strong in grace as a disciple-making disciple, we need to compete according to the rules. That's not popular in our church today. We're talking about obeying commands. Be he, don't be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. If anyone loves, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll keep the commands. Don't, don't, don't put grace against obedience. If you truly trust in God's grace, and does God forgive sins? Yes. So does that mean we can live however we want and, and sin all we want? No. Paul says in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? If grace, if you're going to grow strong in grace, you need to compete according to God's commands. When you sin, acknowledge it as sin. Call it sin. Repent. Don't be scared to be convicted of your sins. Be convicted, confess your sins, repent and ask for forgiveness. And will God forgive us? Why? Why would God forgive us? Because he sent his son to die for us, right? Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. There's always forgiveness. So compete according to the rules. In other words, we need to know the commands. We need to develop a hypersensitivity to sin, to the rules, to the word, to the commands. And when you sin, blow the whistle on yourself. And let other people blow the whistle on you. And when they blow the whistle on you, thank them. Don't get mad at them. Thank them. Thank you for reminding me that I have been disobeying my Lord. I want to please him. I want to get that crown. So I need to compete according to the rules. That's the athlete mentality. Then you have the farmer mentality in verse 6. The farmer mentality. Look at verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Now, a, a farmer works hard. If he doesn't work hard, he doesn't what? If he doesn't work hard, he doesn't eat, right? If he doesn't plant the seeds and plow and water and scare the crows away, you, you can't be a lazy farmer. 
right? Even with technology, you still have to get out there and do the work. You still have to put the seeds out there. You still have to get in the sun. It's still hot. It's still laborious. You're still going to sweat. And a farmer, especially in that day, a farmer needs to work hard. So you need to have a farmer's mentality. If you're going to be a strong disciple-making disciple, work hard. Take your hits. And what is a farmer planting? He's planting seed, right? And so how long does it take for seed to grow? Does it grow immediately? No, it takes time. So we need to have a, a hardworking farmer mentality that's patient. As you meet with other Christians, have you ever been frustrated with another Christian that you're trying to help grow? You want them to grow. You're trying to help them kick a sin habit in their life and they just don't seem to get it. It's hard work. It's like farming. You plant seed after seed after seed. You water it. You water it. You pray. You extend forgiveness. You you just over and over, you're reminding them and it just seems like they never get it. And then sometimes... The light turns on, right? And there's a breakthrough. And the seed begins to grow. And you start to see fruit from your hard work of cultivating and planting seeds in the heart of someone you're discipling. That's a farmer mentality. And then you get to share in the joy of the crops. Nothing sweeter than sharing the gospel with a non-Christian and seeing them come to Christ. Or working with a Christian who's been fighting sin in their lives and they, they have major breakthroughs of grace. We need to have that farmer mentality. Hardworking, patient, keep to the plow, don't turn back. Just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and trusting in the power of God's word. Next mentality here is in verse 7. So not only a a soldier mentality, an athlete mentality, a farmer mentality, we have here in verse 7 a command. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now I'm going to call this an active dependent mentality. An active dependent mentality. It's active and it's dependent. What's the activity you're supposed to do in verse 7? The first part of verse 7, what's the command? Consider. Consider what I say. That's the active. The dependent is, God will give you understanding in everything. So here's the question. Who does the work for understanding? You or God? Who does the work? The Holy Spirit. That's right. Who else? Any other guesses? I heard someone say you. It's both, right? Who's supposed to consider what Paul says? Timothy is. You think, you pray, you read the text again and again and again. You, you read up commentaries, you ask questions, you talk to people about it, you think about what Paul has said. Consider, consider, consider what he's saying. In other words, you're active. You're not passive, you're not lazy, you're active. Consider what I say, and then what's the second part? Who gives you the understanding, though? At the end of the day, who gives you the understanding? The Lord gives you the understanding. The Lord gives the understanding. John Stott tells a story of Charles Simeon. Now, um, some of you know what a sundial is. I mean, a lot of you know what a sundial is. Some of you might not. My son might not know what a sundial is. But you know a sundial, you know, when when the sun is cast on the sundial, then you could could read it, right? So um, he uses this analogy to explain this verse. You can look at the sundial... But if it's a cloudy day and there's no sun, what is it going to tell you? Nothing. You need the sun. The sun will give you the, the light. But even if the sun shines, if you don't look at the sundial, do you, do you get to read it? No. Do you need, so do you need to look at the sundial or do you need sun? Both. Same thing here with understanding. Should you, look, should you study your Bible hard? Should you ask questions as you're trying to make disciples of other people? Yes. 
but God ultimately will give you understanding, which is why we prayed, apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. Okay, so you need a strong mentality, a farmer mentality, a soldier mentality, an athlete mentality, an active dependent mentality, if you're going to be strong in grace as a disciple-making disciple. Let's just do a strong memory and then we'll we'll close for this evening. Look at verse 8. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is according to my gospel. So here we are to remember... Or mine says, keep your attention. Does, do you have a different translation of verse 8? What's the command in verse 8? Keep in mind. Mine says, keep your attention. Anyone else? Remember. Remember. And that's why I say a strong memory. In other words, you bring it back to your mind again and again and again. You bring back to your mind what? Who? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and descended from David. In other words, remember the gospel message. Remember the gospel message. Keep your attention on who? Who's the Bible about? Jesus Christ. We're not ultimately to be text-centered. Now, do we believe in the Bible? Yes. But is the Bible to be the center? Sort of. But there's even something more central than the Bible. Jesus Christ. The Bible points to Jesus Christ. So we're centering our lives not on words of a book, finally, but we're centering our lives on a person, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Now, you can't separate the two, and you should never try. You must always keep these two together. You can't separate these, the word of God from Jesus Christ any more than you can separate your best friend from all of their verbal and nonverbal communication to you over the years. Right? You love your friend. You love your spouse. But all that verbal, nonverbal communication, you can't separate that from the person. That's who they are in, in large ways. And so we are ultimately keeping our attention not on the Bible, but the Bible tells us to focus on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. John Piper says this, Jesus Christ is greater than the Bible, but diminishing the Bible for the sake of Christ always loses Christ. Now, you might not be familiar with a lot of theology battles out there, but a lot of people want to put Jesus against the Bible. And say, well, I love Jesus. I'm not so much focused on the Bible. I'm not trying to put the two against each other. My point is that the Bible focuses us on Jesus. Just like this morning we talked about how some people pit love against sound teaching. Remember that? Some people want to pit Jesus against the Bible. And that's not true. They're they're together. But the Bible is focusing on Jesus. And so Paul tells us in verse 8, keep your attention on Jesus. And he calls Jesus what? Christ. What is another word for Christ? Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not a last name, as some people might think. Christ is an office. Christ is an anointed one. The anointed ones in the Old Testament were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus Christ is the Messiah, capital M. He's the king of all kings. He's the final prophet and the word of the prophets. He is the priest who makes the great sacrifice for our sins. And so we focus on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. There's the sacrifice of Christ. He rose from the dead and he, he, he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead and so he is the Messiah. He is the king. And he descended from whom? In verse 8. David. Now why is that important? Anyone know from the Old Testament? The promise to David, Second Samuel 7. Remember David wanted to build God a temple? And what did God say? Your, your hands are hands of what? Blood, so your son 
will build the temple and you will have a son and you will always have a son to sit on your throne forever. That's the Davidic covenant. And we know that Solomon wasn't the final son who sat on the throne. The final son of David is who? Jesus Christ. And so he's the king of all kings. He's the king of Israel and the king of the world and your king and my king. And so we keep our focus on Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you're here this evening, I want to thank you for coming tonight. This is the main point of the Bible. This is the main point of the church. This is the main point of Christianity. The church is not about just being the church. The Bible is not just about rules, though we did talk about keeping rules. The Bible's ultimate attention is on Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the one who lived for us and died for us. Now, why do we need Jesus to die for us? What did he die for? For our sins. Now, this is the gospel. We have sins and we are sinners. Now, why is sin such a big deal? Because God is holy and God is righteous and God made us and he will judge and punish sins. But God loves us. So though we're sinners, we are condemned and sentenced to death in hell forever. God sends Jesus, the Messiah, the King, to live the life we should have lived, die on the cross for our sins in our place, be buried for three days, and on the third day, he rises from the dead. So Jesus is the one who died and rose for you, so that if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins and saved. That's what God is calling you to do. So if you're not a Christian, God is calling you today to call on him to save you from your sins by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, and so we we need to keep our attention on Jesus. We need to keep reminding ourselves of Jesus. Put him in your memory. It says keep your attention on Jesus. And do you know why we have 66 books of the Bible? So we can see Jesus from all kinds of angles. You know why we have four Gospels? You ever think about that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all telling just about the same story so that we can see Jesus from different angles. As Alistair Begg likes to say, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts, Jesus is preached or proclaimed. In the letters, Jesus is explained. And in the Revelation, Jesus is expected. The whole book is a book about Jesus. And if you ever feel like you get bored of Jesus, just pick up a different book of the Bible and look at him from a fresh angle and a fresh perspective because it's all about keeping your attention on Jesus. Let's close with verse 9. So Paul says, With this gospel of Jesus descended from David and risen from the dead, he says in verse 9, I suffer for this gospel to the point of being bound like a criminal, but God's message is not bound. So if we're going to have this strong memory of Jesus, we also need to keep in mind that even if we are bound like criminals, what can never be bound? What can never be bound? The word of God. God's word. And so here's another incentive for you to be a disciple maker. Because when you have long went to sleep after sharing the the gospel with someone, what still does its work? The gospel. It cannot be bound. People can get mad at you, they can persecute you, but when they hear the truth come from your mouth, God's word is out there and it runs free. And the spirit of God is free to use the word of God to save people and to change people. Do you remember the the story that Jesus tells of the farmer who throws seed and then goes to sleep and he doesn't know how it grows, but it grows? That's the word of God, running free and bearing fruit wherever it goes. Uh, Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel's power is the power of God to save the worst of sinners. Paul killed Christians. The gospel saved him. Terrorists are beheading Christians today. And you know what? The gospel is powerful enough to save terrorists and change their heart and write God's law in their heart. The gospel moves even when Christians are jailed, even when Christians are marginalized, even when Christians are ignored or killed. The gospel runs free. And what does Matthew 24, 14 say? We'll just close with Matthew 24, 14. I'll read it to you. This is what Jesus says. Matthew 24, 14 says, This good news, this gospel of the kingdom, will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, all ethnic people groups. And then the end will come. So will the gospel spread across the whole earth? Will it run free? Yes. Remember that. When you feel like it's a waste of time to share the gospel. Tim Chester, who's an evangelist and pastor in, in the UK, he said, you know, I used to think the main reason I don't share the gospel was because I was scared of rejection. I realize that's not why I don't share the gospel. I don't share the gospel, Tim Chester wrote recently, because I don't think that person's going to believe. And I already reasoned in my mind, oh, they're not going to believe. They don't have time for it. They don't want it anyways. But God's word is not bound. It's not limited. It's powerful. And so keeping that in our mind, that we focus on Jesus and we get the word out there, letting the word do the work. We have a strong mentality like a soldier, a farmer, an athlete. And we keep Jesus in mind as we spread the gospel. That is how you be strong. That's how we become strong in grace as a disciple-making disciple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this meditation tonight. As we think, as we thought about 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 10, we pray that you would help us to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Help us to be disciple-making disciples. Father, show us who we are to be spending our lives committing to more personally, that we might commit to them what we have been taught. Cultivate, Father, in our church family a Bible-reading culture where we meet with one another to disciple each other, to read the Bible together and pray together. Help us, Lord, to be a, a generation in this church. Lord, we pray that First Southern Baptist Church, if you don't come soon, Lord Jesus, we want this church to stand for the next hundred years, and we know that's not promised to any local church. But we want the future generations to take what we've passed on to them and pass it on to the next. So, Father, help us to cultivate a culture here of disciple-making, of Bible-reading, of prayer, where we read with each other and massage the Word of God deep into each other's hearts and minds to Christians and non-Christians, anyone who is willing to read the Bible together. So grow us, Father, in the strength of your grace. And now as we go to prayer, we ask for your help. Guide our prayer time, Father, and may it glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.